Good morning, everyone. Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. Uh, over the years, I'm sure you can attest to the same thing. Over the years, the Lord has used a number of verses, at times entire chapters, to lead me, direct me, speak to me. And um, there have been a number of verses out of the book of Romans that the Lord has used at different junctures in my life uh, to lead me. A case in point is way back in chapter 1, seems so long ago now, it was actually a year we were there, a year ago. Uh, Romans chapter 1, the 16th verse, has been precious to me on a number of occasions. Paul proclaims, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, Extremely important as a young man trying to proclaim the gospel as a young man going off to the mission field. Uh, this verse I have returned to time and time again. No need to be ashamed. I am not ashamed. Not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Lord has used that to strengthen me on a number of occasions during the years. Another case in point, chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There was a season, and I will confess there are still times, I wrestle with Asaph's question of old. Why do the unrighteous prosper? Why is it at times it seems as though those immersed in their sin, wallowing in their sin, seem to prosper while the people of God suffer and struggle away? Uh, I've wrestled with that. This verse has been a great help whenever I have. Just a reminder to get into the temple of the Lord, have a long-range view of things, a much broader perspective of reality. And understand uh, that judgment is coming. A day of reckoning is fast approaching. There will be an eternal separation between the sheep and the goats. It is not a question of if. It is simply a matter of when. Turn with me into chapter 3. Another verse, another case in point. I'm thinking of the 25th verse. Obviously we're picking it up in the middle of a thought. But the verse in itself is all I want to convey right now quickly. Paul writes, whom God, a reference to Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There was a time when I was surrounded, inundated by people who were buying into this notion of universalism. Everyone will be saved in the end. And by people who began to affirm God's love to such a degree, to such an extent, that they actually entered into error and began to portray the cross as nothing more than God's determination to break your heart in the light of his love for you, but no mention of Christ's penal, substitutionary sacrifice. No mention of the atonement, 
No need for that bloody sacrifice on my behalf. No, simply a declaration of how special you are and Christ's willingness to show you how special you are by suffering man's on animosity to such a degree. It's still alive and well with us, certainly. And this verse has helped me, helped me to always come back to exactly what was happening upon Calvary's cross. The Lord Jesus Christ died as my substitute, bearing the wrath of God. Turn over to chapter 5. If you were raised in a Christian home as I was, one of my earliest recollections when it comes to Scripture obviously is John 3.16, right? You go back in your memory banks, and undoubtedly you think, and perhaps it's true, that was the first verse you ever memorized. I think that's true in my case. This, however, was a close second. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a little boy, five years of age, with that very limited, very finite understanding, wrestling with my own sinfulness and Christ's crucifixion and what it means to simply believe in the Lord Jesus, receive the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And the precious verse, and his corollary in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Texts that I have come back to repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Turn over now to chapter 8. You knew I wasn't going to skip this one. Chapter 8, verse 28. And we know, declares Paul, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Occasions, instances, too many to recall. Too many to number. Uh, where I have grabbed onto this verse. The sentiment, the truth, the reality conveyed in this simple statement, I have grabbed onto it for all I am worth as I have ridden out storms in life, some of which I'm still in the middle of. And yet this verse has been the bedrock. It has conveyed that immovable, unchangeable, unshakable truth that our God reigns and our God has numbered the very hairs upon our heads and is intimately acquainted with every detail, however trivial, of our lives and is sovereign over it all. Into the ninth chapter, a verse that I, I will confess it publicly, did not like. It actually offended me to the depths of my soul going back, I don't know, 16, 17 years now. Chapter 9, verse 18, so then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Extremely important in my Christian sojourn, crucial in my wrestling with Scripture, my studying of the gospel, entering into the depths of the gospel, and coming face to face with the fact that I am saved for one reason, one reason alone, the wonder of God's mercy as revealed in his purpose of election. And that was a pivotal moment. And it is a verse I continue to go back to time and time again to bask in that glorious truth 
that I am saved, there is only one reason I am saved. God. That is it. Turn with me now to the 10th chapter. I want to share with you one more verse. There are others, and there are more to come, obviously, in this epistle. But one more verse that God used at a particular juncture in my life continues to remind me of and speak to me through it. I am referring to the 17th verse, again, of Romans chapter 10, where Paul writes, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. What I want to do is the following. I want to share with you five ways in which God has used that verse in its context in my life, in different seasons, as I wrestled with different things. Now look at the sermon notes. You will see under application one, two, three, four. However, I just said to you, I'm going to share five ways in which God has used this verse. So for you note-taking purists, Puritans, precisionists, you know who you are. If it's written and that's it, and no, 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 no. It's precise. One, two, three, four. Split number one into A and B, and you'll do just fine. But I'm going to rhyme them off. One, two, three, four, and five. To get us there, however, we need to understand verse 17. And we need to understand the immediate context. We need to explain it. And so follow along as I pick up where we left off last week. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 and take us right through to the end of the chapter. And so here it is, the word of the Lord. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask. Did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long. I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All right, here we go. A brief explanation. What is happening in this chapter? Simply put, in a nutshell, sum it all up. Paul is explaining, accounting. Paul is accounting for Israel's widespread unbelief all he's doing. Step back 2,000 years, 
days of the apostles, immediately following the days of the Lord Jesus, his incarnation, his sojourn here on earth, stepping back 2,000 years, the vast majority of the Jews rejected the gospel. Paul, in this chapter, simply trying to give an account of it, explain it. He does so basically in three sections. The first section, as a matter of fact, begins back in the ninth chapter. It begins in verse 30, goes as far more or less, this isn't too precise, but more or less as far as verse 4 of chapter 10. And all Paul does in those verses is affirm the following. The Jews have stumbled over Christ. That's it. That's how we explain their unbelief. That's how we account for it. The Jews, Israel, ethnic Israel, they've stumbled over Christ. Meaning what? Here it is. They have insisted on putting their righteousness where Christ's righteousness alone belongs. That's it. That's how we explain it. They insist on putting their righteousness where Christ's righteousness alone belongs. We have a problem. We are sinners. It's far worse than that. God is holy, and God, please do not mistake this, God is angry, terribly angry with sinners. And the problem is this. We're going to stand before him someday, and we're going to give an account. We will stand before his tribunal. We will enter his courtroom, and sentence will be passed. Please understand Sentence has actually already been passed. He has already declared us guilty. And he has already declared us condemned. All he is waiting to do is execute his sentence. Carry it out. My friend, on that day, you do not, please believe me, you do not want to stand before a holy God in your righteousness. I stand here on my own. I think I've done enough to merit a legal standing in your sight. I think I've done enough to pass the, the scrutiny of your unsearchable, unfathomable knowledge and the fact that you peer into the inner recesses of my soul and know absolutely everything about me. You know, I think I'll be all right. And I think I'll just stand there before you on my own righteousness. That's what the Jews insisted on doing. They were convinced they could establish their own righteousness, therefore putting it in the place of the only righteousness that will be accepted, is accepted before God. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's how Paul accounts for Israel's unbelief. They tripped over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why? Again, the fourth, fifth time, oh, I pray you get this. They insisted on putting their righteousness where only Christ's righteousness belongs. That's the first section. Second section is this. Paul responds to an objection. Verse 5 through 13. The objection is this. Is it possible? Is it possible that the Jews didn't believe, or the reason, the reason the Jews didn't believe is because they were misinformed. Is that possible? After all, Moses gave them that big law, didn't he? 
Moses just kind of dropped that law, that Mosaic covenant on top of them. Can we blame them for thinking, for assuming, for concluding that salvation was contingent upon them? Yes, we can. How does Paul prove it? Well, Moses, let's go to Moses. And let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And let me make it clear for you that Moses preached, verse 6, a righteousness based on faith. Moses himself proclaimed a righteousness based on faith. And Paul proves it with his three citations out of the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. So he lays that objection to rest. The third section, there is now a second objection. It differs from the first. Remember the first. Can we explain Israel's unbelief as follows? Is it possible they were misinformed? The second objection brings us into the third section is as follows. Is it possible they were uninformed? Uninformed. Is it possible that they just simply never heard this? Is that the reason? Is that how we can possibly explain their unbelief? And Paul again answers in this section, the section we've read from verse 14 through to verse 21, in the negative. No. His answer consists of three stages. Very simple. Stage one. What does he do in stage one? Verses 14 to the middle of verse 15. He explains how people are saved. This is fascinating. He explains how people are saved. And his explanation, he basically takes us through five steps and I'll sum them all, it all up in five words. Five steps to salvation. First is calling. Takes us back actually into verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There you have it, calling. But now look at what he says in verse 14. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? So this is the second step. Believing. Only those who call on the Lord Jesus, only those who believe in him will actually call on him. So calling, believing. But then he adds something else in the middle of verse 14. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So only those who have heard will believe. Only those who believe will call. But then he adds a fourth thing at the end of verse 14. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So only those who actually have access to a preacher will hear. Only those who actually hear will believe. Only those who actually believe will call. But then he adds something else. Brings us into the 15th verse. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Sending. Five terms. Reverse the order. And you have the five means by which someone, an individual, is saved. Sending. God sends his messengers. That's it. Number two. Preaching. Proclamation. Not just, but obviously including what I am doing right now. One-on-one, -on -one, small group setting, the proclamation of God's word. So there is sending followed by preaching. Followed by what? Hearing. Cognitive understanding. Followed by what? Believing. Culminating in what? 
calling. Which brings us back to what? Verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul begins first stage in his response as he tears down that objection. He explains how people are saved. And then what he does in the second stage of his response is he applies his explanation to Israel. This begins in the middle of verse 15 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 21. So I have just explained to you how people are saved. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. I know what you're thinking. I know what your objection is. Is it possible that the Jews were uninformed? Well, I've just given you the steps as to how someone is saved. Let me now apply this in the, in the case of the Jews. Is it possible that there was somewhere in their experience, there was a breakdown in this five-step process? That's what he's dealing with now from the middle of verse 15 through to verse 21. And he's going to do your favorite thing and my favorite thing. He's going to immerse us in the Old Testament scriptures. Oh, he's relentless, isn't he? He's going to take us again to the Old Testament to prove his point. So let's begin with this sending. Is, is the problem that there was a lack of sending? That in the case of the Jews, God didn't send messengers. Well, no, that's not the reason. And to prove it, in verse 15, he quotes from Isaiah 52, 7, as it is written. Remember, this is Isaiah's day. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There were always preachers in the history of the nation of Israel. The prophets, for starters. And this history of preachers continued up until the apostles' day. So is it possible the breakdown was here? God never sent messengers. He most definitely sent messengers. Well, is it possible, closely related to that, that there was a lack of preaching? Maybe these messengers failed in their commission. Maybe they didn't faithfully deliver God's word. No, that's not it. Verse 16, and to prove it, he quotes... From Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah, Isaiah himself says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? God sent, he most definitely did. The men he sent most definitely preached. So that wasn't the problem either. Well, maybe it was a lack of hearing. Was it, I don't know, they were just not there when the word was proclaimed. They didn't have access to it. Is that the reason? The answer is no. Brings us into the 18th verse. And here Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 19, verse 4. But I ask, have they not heard? Is that how we can explain their unbelief? Indeed they have. For their voice, the voice of God's messengers has gone out to all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. Let me take one more stab at it. Is it possible that, okay, the messengers were sent, they faithfully preached, they heard, but they just didn't understand. They just didn't have the mental capacity. They didn't have the cognitive capability to grasp what was being proclaimed. Is that possible? Paul answers in the negative in verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand they understood. How does he prove it? He makes two most interesting 
Old Testament quotations. The first is from, again, from Deuteronomy 32. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then just to throw salt on the open wound, verse 20, for good measure. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Of whom is God speaking in these two texts? Who is the foolish nation? Who are those who did not seek God? He is referring to the Gentile. They got it. They're, they're flow, and now they're flowing into the church. Well, they were the most ignorant people walking the face of the earth. Just go back to chapter 1. Ignorance personified the Gentiles. Without God, strangers to the covenants, right? Without hope in the world. They were on the outside looking in. The Jews had the oracles of God. The Jews were a nation formed at Sinai. The Israel was a nation to whom God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Israel was the nation that the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and the rituals and the feasts and all these things. You want to talk about not understanding. The Gentiles were clueless, but they're believing. Oh, it's not a question of ignorance when it comes to the Israelites. It is not a question of not understanding when it comes to the Jews. Oh, they understood. Oh, understand Paul's argument here. Grasp his argument. Here's how someone is saved. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. Well, why haven't the Jews called? Is it possible they were misinformed? No. He's already demonstrated that. Is it possible they were uninformed? No. God sent his messengers. The message was proclaimed Faithfully, They heard it. They grasped it cognitively. We arrive now at the third stage in his response. Paul draws the obvious, the only obvious conclusion. It's the elephant in the room. Verse 21. But of Israel, another Old Testament citation, chapter Isaiah 65, 2. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's how we explain Israel's unbelief. There was not a breakdown insofar as the message is concerned. There was no breakdown in the proclamation of that message. The Jews were a willfully disobedient people who refused to believe. Now I began by saying to you, that in the middle of this text, again, namely the 17th verse, we find a truth in its context, which God has used in my life on, on a number of occasions, and I'm exceedingly grateful, thankful for it. I'm going to share these with you now. Five ways, occasions in which God has led me, spoken to me through this verse, impressing it upon me. In these five I believe you'll find a faithful application of the text for us. 
Here's the first way God has used this verse and the surrounding verse, the entire text in my life. He has used it to free me, free me from the treadmill of methods, programs, and techniques. Praise God. Years ago, as a minister of the gospel, he freed me from that. He freed me from the endless, never-ending treadmill of methods, programs, and techniques. Oh, my friends, you have no idea, but as a pastor, it is exhausting. It is exhausting the things I get in the mail. It is exhausting the number of email I receive. My, oh, pastor friend, if only you were doing this, you'd double the size of your church. It, oh, if only you would adopt this for $29.99, you would transform your community. If only you would implement this simple 17-step process, which somebody, I don't know, in Albuquerque just discovered, oh, things would be so different, it'd be so transformed. It's just this tidal wave. On and on and on it goes. It all stems, I think, from a, very, from a misunderstanding or answering poorly a very simple question. Here's the question. Why do people reject the gospel? Why do people reject the gospel? A wrong answer will wreak havoc on the church. And it is in our day. Why do people reject the gospel? Let me repeat it. A wrong answer will wreak havoc on the church. It is detrimental to the long-term health of the church. The answer that most people give in our day is this. The message isn't engaging. That's the answer most people come up with. The message isn't engaging. What, what they really mean by that, and I'm going to group it under three categories, but there are lots of oh, ABCs here, but I'm not going to bore you with it all. What they really mean by that is this. The message isn't sophisticated enough. Or the message isn't relevant. I love that one. Actually, I hate it, but you know what I mean. The message isn't relevant enough. Or the message isn't hip enough. If only we were doing something different, people would believe the gospel. It's the greatest naivety going. If only we would do something different, people would believe the gospel, my friends. The problem is not the message. When it is faithfully proclaimed, that is an issue. Whether or not the gospel is actually being proclaimed, let alone the silly gimmicks and programs and everything else that goes along with it. But when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, that proclamation, that message is not the problem. The answer to the question resides in verse 21. But of Israel, he says... All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Try to adjust the gospel message to suit a disobedient and contrary people. And what will you end up with? Sheer chaos and confusion. It's like a drowning man. I mean, let's, let's use our sanctified imaginations here. There you are. You're uh, on, a, on a boat, I don't know, in the middle of the Atlantic. Don't ask why. There you are. The boat goes down. You're treading water, right? It brings a smile to my face as I look out. But yeah, there you are, treading water. And you've been going 15, 20 minutes. And another boat happens by. And some man gruffly yells to you, here, I'm throwing this life preserver. Grab it. We'll tow you aboard. The life preserver lands right here. There it is. What do you do? Here's what you don't do. 
well, I wonder if the music they play on that ship is, is particularly stylish and, and really will make me feel comfortable in the gathering of the church. Hmm. I should maybe text him. I wonder if the people in the church are actually really loving or if they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm tired of hypocrites. I'm tired of the church just putting on a face and the, I, I want more honesty and transparency and all this stuff. Oh, I, I, wonder, I wonder if they're culturally engaged. I wonder if these people are actually culturally relevant. Do you ask any of that stuff? My friend, what do you do? You grab the life preserver because you're drowning and you know you need it. And yet we are in the midst of a church consumed with what? What's going on in the ship? Thinking that somehow this will be the determining factor. That somehow this will be the hand that flips the switch. That somehow this will make all the difference for the individual. No, my friends, the unregenerate man is a disobedient and contrary person. Absolutely stubborn, absolutely obstinate. We have a message to proclaim. It is not a popular message. Proclaim it faithfully. I guarantee it. People will hate you. They will despise you. It is by nature an offensive message. Proclaim it, we must. Go back to Romans 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I praise God. I really do because, you know, I was dabbling in it. I almost went 15, I don't know how many years ago now. A lot of things happened in my life 15, 16 years ago. I say that a lot. But there I was, at, at, you know, a fork in the road. Which way are you going to go? Into this never-ending treadmill of more methods, more programs, more techniques. Or simply put the word forward. Put the gospel forward. Oh, he used it to free me from that impasse. Secondly, he has used this verse, this text, to point me to a very simple strategy for church growth. Very simple strategy for church growth. So this is still number one, A and B. If you're in the notes and you didn't like the one, two, three, four, five, if you made the adjustment, this is number two. He used it to point me to a very simple strategy for church growth. It stemmed a lot. I mean, timely it was, a work of the Spirit, I don't doubt it. I was reading something in John Calvin at the time years ago, and Calvin said this in reference to Romans 10, 17. When it pleases the Lord to work, the word preach becomes the instrument of his power. When it pleases the Lord to work, the word preached becomes the instrument of his power. That is my strategy. I remember sitting with, with Cody and Ike and Randy years ago when we first met. It's coming up on seven years. And having some discussion along these lines, even discussion in terms of vision and these sorts of things. And I was perfectly honest and upfront. I have no vision. Is that a bad thing? I really have no vision. I have actually, I don't know. I think about it. I don't come up with anything. I, I'm, I'm a preacher. And, and I preach the word. And that came out of this conviction that the word preached when it pleases the Lord to work becomes the instrument of his power. It is what Paul is affirming, black and white, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, sending Preaching, hearing, believing, calling. Saving faith requires that we hear the Bible. We must explain at all costs, however painful it might be for the individual, the Bible. Explain it. It's what we need. And in the hands of the Spirit of God, it becomes the power of God to create faith in the life of His children and cultivate 
and nurture that faith. This is my strategy. And I think, I think I'm right in saying this. This is our strategy at Grace Community Church. It's our strategy for evangelism. Get the word out there. It's our strategy for sanctification. You're wrestling with sin? Yeah, read books. That's good. Get in the word. Discipleship. It's our key, our strategy for discipleship in the word. It's our strategy for dealing with broken marriages, wayward children, substance abuse. It's our strategy for dealing with bereavement, persecution, rejection, and every other form of trouble that might come down the highway. There it is in Romans 10, 17. Faith. You need faith, my friend. You need a living, vibrant, active faith. You'll only get it one way. It's by hearing. It is by hearing what? The word of Christ. Oh, he used it to point me to a very simple... And may I be so bold as to suggest biblical strategy for church growth. The third way in which he used it is as follows. He used it to protect me, this text in its entirety. He used it to protect me from the crippling effects of hyper-Calvinism. That was a mouthful. Did you like it? Some of you, maybe not. He used it to protect me from the crippling effects of hyper-Calvinism. If anyone is saved, the cause is God's sovereignty. You know I believe that. We believe that and affirm it as a church. And we heard it in chapter 9. Amen. Praise God. Equally true. If anyone is condemned, the cause is man's obstinacy. And Paul has made that clear from chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through to the end of chapter 10. God is not the efficient cause of anyone who is lost. He is not. His sovereignty rules over all. His sovereignty rules over all, but it is not the cause as to why someone is lost. People are lost. Verse 21, you need go no further. People are lost because all day long he holds out his hands, but they are a disobedient and contrary people. There is a tension. And I've said it before. Here it is again. Embrace the tension. And celebrate the tension. And here are two truths. This text brought me back. Perhaps from the brink. I don't know. That might be overstating the case. But two truths that we must keep in view. Number one. They both come out of verse 21. We must safeguard the truth of divine pity. In God's estimation of man. We must safeguard it. We must protect the truth of divine pity. In God's estimation of man. Of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand. Yes, there is a difference between God's common love for his creatures, his special love for his children. We affirm it. His common love for his creatures is in and of itself a glorious love. And it is a love we proclaim. And it is a love we proclaim in the proclamation of the gospel, and we must never lose sight of it. If we lose sight of it, and we cannot live with the tension, I'll use the word, I know it makes some of you uncomfortable, but forgive me. If, if, we, if we lose sight of it, our Calvinism will become ugly. It will just become downright ugly. If we lose sight and are unable to safeguard, celebrate, champion, and proclaim the truth of divine pity in God's estimation of man, equally true, we must safeguard the truth of divine sincerity in God's invitation to man. Where did I get that from? I got it from verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands. Held up my hands. 
to a disobedient and contrary people. The problem did not reside with God. The problem resided with them. The problem resides with the unbeliever. Yes, we affirm the distinction between the general call and the special call. But we never lose sight of that general call. We never lose sight of the sincerity of that call. And we preach and we proclaim the gospel widely. And we announce and we make no apology for it. Whosoever will may come. If you, if I, cannot, if we, let's be inclusive, if we cannot ascribe salvation to God's sovereign mercy, we have veered from the biblical gospel. I firmly believe that. If we cannot ascribe salvation entirely, wholly, completely to God's sovereign mercy, we have veered from the biblical gospel. Equally true. If we cannot invite, encourage, beg, and plead with people to believe, we too have veered from the biblical gospel. There is a tension. Embrace it and get over it and get on with it. Because the Apostle Paul does. And we have both right here in chapters 9 and 10. Oh, we plead with people. We beg people, we invite people, we command people, we encourage people. We hold out an extension of our God himself, our hands all the day long. And we plead with people to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I apologize once for using the word. Here it is again, Calvinism. The kind of Calvinism we want is this. It's a Spurgeonite Calvinism. C.H. Spurgeon. That's, that's, that's what we're talking about. There is a history of it here. You see, there are other breeds, other brands, other traditions that we really may perhaps want to shy away from. This is a William Carey type Calvinism. This is an Andrew Fuller Calvinism. A George Mueller Calvinism. A vibrant Calvinism. Which holds these tensions. Why? Because ultimately, in the final analysis, they're committed to Scripture. And they realize they couldn't resolve everything. They couldn't cross every T or dot every I, but under Scripture they proclaimed and sought to be faithful to what the Bible proclaimed. And I'm so thankful for that period in my life where God protected me, protected me from the crippling effects, dare I say oppressive effects of a hyper-Calvinism. Number four, God used it to preserve me from the fog of restless experimentalism. He thought number three was bad. You didn't think it could get worse. There it is. He used it to preserve me from the fog, the fog, the mist of restless experimentalism. What am I talking about? Simply this. Here we go. Way back in time. Before the Lord Jesus himself, a man named Plato. Great philosopher in the eyes of many. Plato had a very simple worldview. Here it is. Think in terms of two circles. Circle number one, spiritual. You got that? Circle number two, material. All right? Spiritual is real. Material is unreal. Spiritual is perfect. Material is imperfect. Spiritual is eternal. Material is not. Spiritual is unchangeable. Material is changeable. The spiritual, well, there are the forms, the substance. But the material world is simply a shadow. Therefore, he despised the material world in his system of thought. And in his worldview, what's the goal? The goal is to connect with spiritual. Okay? Simple enough. You got two circles. 
Now draw in your mind's eye a third circle right in the middle. Man. Part of man intersects with the spiritual realm. This is Plato's thinking. That is his, man's, spiritual part. Part of man intersects with the material realm. That is man's material part. To the material realm belongs everything physical, including the mind, the understanding. The spiritual is simply a part by, in us by which we gain direct access to that spiritual realm. Have you got that? I hope you've got that because it undermines, underpins how most of us think in this room. Okay? It, it is. It, shaped, it, shaped, it has shaped Western worldview. It's how many of us think. How has it impacted the church? Oh, let me count the ways I don't have time. But from the opening centuries of the church, the early church, that philosophical system infiltrated the church and began to shape much of church practice, even church doctrine. There was the Reformation in many ways. It, it, it was many things, but one thing it was was almost like a, a, a pushback against Platonic philosophy. But it, it has persisted. This mindset has persisted, and it's still alive and well today. And it infiltrates the church today. And let me explain to you how it infiltrates and influences us in just a couple of very simple sentences. Here it is. Spiritual growth comes through the spirits, my spiritual part, direct communion with God. So what it means to be spiritual is for my spiritual part to be directly connected with the spiritual God. And the key to growth, the key to spirituality is this. I must simply realize God's presence. And the spiritual higher side of me has direct communion, direct fellowship with, the God, with God, of which the material, including my mind, never knows, perceives, or understands. That's how most people think. How do I know that? Because they actually think faith and the mind are antithetical. You hear that all the time today. Faith and the intellect, faith and mind, antithetical. That if I want to commune with God, Communing with God is simply me realizing my oneness with God. And there is, therefore, because I have entered this spiritual realm, there is this direct communion fellowship flow between God and me, spirit, almost to the point where they are collapsed, and God communicates to me directly. Romans 10, 17 absolutely obliterates any such notion. Romans 10, 17 affirms what? Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. We cannot divorce spirituality from God's word. We cannot separate spiritual growth from God's word. We cannot divorce or separate the work of the spirit apart from God's word. For that matter, we cannot divorce the mind from the spirit of God. We cannot divorce the mind from spiritual growth. God works in a very simple way. Yes, we are body and soul. One is not better than the other. Together they constitute humanity. And as an entire whole, a unit, yes, I'm in fellowship with God. And as I hear cognitive understanding, my mind is engaged, my mind is exercised, and God speaks to me, but he does so through objective truth, a voice that actually comes from outside of myself. He speaks to me. 
and my mind understands it. And yes, the Spirit of God then makes the Word of God alive, cultivating, stirring, producing what? Faith. That is completely contrary, antithetical to much of what passes as Christian spirituality in our day. Oh, that man is spiritual. Oh, that woman is spiritual. What people more often than not actually mean by that is what? They're in touch with God. There's the spiritual side to them where they're actually just kind of with God, in God, hear from God, and the Word of God actually doesn't enter into the equation. I dabbled in that back in my university days. And I'm so thankful God freed me from it, preserved me from the fog of restless experimentalism. And now fifthly and finally, God used this verse, this entire text, to show me what people must do to be saved. Sending you and me as Christians, we are sent. We proclaim in different ways, but make no mistake, we all proclaim. We all ought to be proclaiming. We are sent ones. Sending is followed by what? Preaching. Verbal proclamation of what? There's a content to what we proclaim. The word of God. People hear. The spirit of God works through the mind and their understanding. Produces what? Faith. Believing. Whereby what? They call. All the way back to verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I am thankful that God used this passage, that verse, verse 17, to show me what people must do to be saved. Let me speak directly to a few gathered here right now. Do you understand what I've just said? You've heard it. You just heard it. Here I am, I'm sent, right? I've fulfilled that. I've preached, I've proclaimed it. You've understood it. It's not a question, you, I, I, you have understood it. It's not a question of cognitive ability. Well, I don't, have, I don't have what I need to understand everything that's been said. No, there's nothing too difficult in terms of what I've said this morning. If we put ourselves to it, we can understand a whole lot of things we don't think we can. You've heard it. Now the question is, do you believe it? Do you acknowledge your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that the Lord Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior? All-sufficient. Able to wipe away every stain. Do you see in the words of what we read here in Romans 10. That God himself holds out his hands to you. Do you see that your stubbornness is the only thing that keeps you from God? Your stubbornness, if you're an unbeliever, is the only thing that keeps you from God. Do you believe? Will you take to heart what Paul says there in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our Father. That is our simple, heartfelt prayer for some gathered here this very moment. That having heard, they would understand. Having understood, they would truly believe and take it to heart.
believing they might call out to you, and calling out to you, they might rest in an all-sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Take now what we have proclaimed. Take now what we have heard and apply it deep within the word deeply implanted in every heart. And we ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.